0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Upholding the Truth. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The High Calling of a Deacon.
1: I'm reading 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a younger man, I spent a year working in a restaurant. You know, a good part of what I did involved waiting on tables. I soon found out that people are very particular about their food. You know, they want their meat done just so. There's certain things on the menu they want changed. They want their drinks served at a certain time. Everyone's different. They want their coffee cups or water glasses refilled regularly, and they want someone to ask them how they're doing and to be prepared to make the kind of adjustments that would add to their dining pleasure. No matter how full the restaurant became and how many tables I served, each table still wanted the same level of service as if they were the only ones in the place. I came to realize the task was not only demanding, but humbling. The people at the table, they were the Lord's, and I was the servant. In fact, the the term deacon simply means servant. To be a deacon is to be a table waiter, to be a table servant. Since we've just been studying the duties and requirements of elders, when we come to the deacons, it's natural to think of them as those believers who serve one rung lower on the ladder than the elders. After all, the elders are the overseeing shepherds, and the deacons, well, they're servants at the table. But if that's how we understand it, we miss the thinking of our Lord. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Some years ago, as I was thinking about these matters, I decided to write out my very own definition of a deacon. And here's what I wrote. I said, a deacon is a servant inspired by Jesus and has come to believe that the place of menial servitude is the highest place that he or she can attain. Good deacons are not biding their time, waiting to rise to become elders. They feel honored to have stooped to the very position that our Lord and Savior did when he washed his disciples' feet. Deacons who serve well are highly honored by God, for they are the hands and feet of the local church. Their selfless and often unnoticed service runs completely counter to the culture in which we live. When the world tells us to rise to the highest place, deacons have descended to the lowest place. When the call of our age is to become a star, standing in the center of the spotlight, deacons stand in the shadows and are thrilled when the spotlight shines on one who is the beneficiary of their ministry deacons more than any other church officer have risen to the lowest place and exemplify the attitude of Jesus, who being in the form of God, humbled himself and became the lowest deacon. This is the story of our salvation. To be a deacon is at the very heart of what the gospel desires for all of us to become. It is the Christian ideal. That's the end of my quote. So what's a deacon? Well, they're servants. They're also ministry leaders. The early church soon discovered the need for deacons. The first challenge was presented in Act 6, you know, from the very beginning, and we'll see this when we come to 1 Timothy 5. The early church was involved in caring for its widows. In a day when there was no social safety net, the church always cared for those who had little, and widows were often the first on the list. But because a problem had developed in the way food was distributed, and because complaints about unfairness had surfaced, The natural idea was, let the apostles handle it. You know, and we in our day would say, you know, what are the pastors doing about it? You know, the elders need to solve this problem. So we mean parking problems and nursery overcrowding and the need for additional food services. Well, the list goes on and on. After all, they're given leadership in the church. So Acts 6, 2-4 tells us what happened. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, please hear the formula. The apostles and then later the elders who give shepherding oversight to the church have a primary duty which includes prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the call of an elder today. Hence, matters such as who feeds the poor should not be on their plate. Instead, it's given to deacons. So imagine the scenario. 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. That's in Acts 2. By Acts 4, we understand the number of believers in Jerusalem has risen to 5,000 men. Well, add women and children, and you probably have a church of 20,000. By Acts 5, you have many more believers added, and so we're left only to guess at how large this church had become by Act 6. It was a megachurch. When Act 7 mentions that only seven were chosen to serve widows, we know that these seven, well, they must have been ministry leaders. And here we get a picture of the office of a deacon. Deacons are ministry leaders who mobilize volunteers to assist in service to God. The early church began to formalize their office. You know, for instance, listen to how Paul begins the book of Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So here we see the arrangements of the early church. The elders give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, the shepherding of God's people in terms of doctrinal truth and the general oversight, and the deacons give themselves to everyday acts of service. So what did it include? Well, both Luther and Calvin thought the primary role of deacons was care for the poor. That may be true, but there are many other ministries. Because deacons are called upon to minister to all the tangible needs of others, well, they visit shut-ins and they provide care and counseling for those in need. They'd be the logical choice of overseeing offerings and church budgets. They'd oversee parking if that's an issue, care for the nursery. The list can go on and on, depending upon the needs of any local church. Elders must be careful not to do those things, for it will distract them from their number one teaching and shepherding function. When elders start to act as deacons, then deacons get crowded out. No one's left to do prayer in the ministry of the word. That's the tragedy. So then, who should serve as a deacon? When we read our text, you may have noticed that our text tends to speak of deacons in masculine terms, as if they were men. However, I want to go to verse 11, where it says, "...their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things." There are several ways to understand this text. One way of seeing it is to say that the deacons are men, and they need their wives to complete the task. But another way of reading this text is to note that the word wives, well, that's exactly the same word in the Greek as the term women. So the translators, therefore, must make a decision. And let me tell you what's at stake. If verse 11 is about wives, then we have a ministry for the deacon's wives. But if it's about women, then women are deacons right alongside of the men. So I, for myself, believe that verse 11 should read, women likewise must be dignified and so forth. Well, one, the first word of verse 11 is there. That's actually not found in the Greek text. Our translators have added it in order to make sense of the phrase. But if the word there is taken out and we simply have the word women, then it all makes sense. Secondly, notice also the word likewise in verse 11. Whenever that word comes up in 1 Timothy, it introduces a new group, and hence we're introduced in verse 11 to a new group, that group being female deacons. And thirdly, when Paul discusses elders or overseers, did you notice that he made no mention of the qualifications for their wives? Why would he mention the qualifications then of the wives of the deacons? Well, I don't think he does. And given how important the family of the elder is, including the role of his wife, are we then to assume that Paul thinks the role of the wife of a deacon is of greater importance than the wife of an elder? I don't think that's likely. Again, I'm left to conclude that in verse 11, Paul speaks of female deacons. So we do know that there is no mention made of female elders in the New Testament. But there are numerous mentions made of female deacons. For instance, Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cenchreae. We also know in Acts 9, Dorcas is mentioned for her acts of charity. Other women have deacon roles like Lydia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, lots of female deacons.
0: Back to the Bible Canada broadcasts the teaching of the Bible so that people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Newfeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Since women did serve as deacons in the early church, it would seem strange indeed when Paul speaks of the selection of deacons. He mentions only male deacons and their wives. And here's how I understand the text. Verses 8 to 10 mentions deacons as a general category, and it lists the qualifications for deacons, all of them. Then verse 11 mentions further special qualifications for women who serve as deacons. And verse 12 mentions further special qualifications for the men. Then verse 13 mentions the rewards that come to both men and women who serve as deacons. So then who can serve as a deacon? Well, both men and women. But that leaves us with some questions. Why does Paul not lump them all together? Why make separate mention of the men and then the women? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'd like to offer a guess. For instance, go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, and there we have a description of a worthy widow who's been known for her godliness. That could also be seen as a description of godly women. Or listen to Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what you have in Titus is a deacon shepherding role assigned only to women. So why does Paul separate out male and female deacons? Well, it would seem that there are unique responsibilities given to each. Now, we might not always be able to spell all of that out, but in some areas, female deacons have performed specific tasks. Philip Ryken says that in the second century in Egypt, for instance, women deacons went up and down the streets collecting abandoned babies and brought them into care and raised them, and this brought the gospel a great reputation and made the preaching of the cross possible. With J.M. Ross pointed out that in the third century, deaconesses served as doorkeepers visiting the sick, helped when women were being baptized and cared for orphans. In the fourth century, Chrysostom described them as being useful and necessary for the functions of the church. My sense has always been that the unique abilities which women possess can't be copied by men, that godly women add a dimension to the gospel witness that moves the gospel forward with great power. I think Paul recognizes that and therefore speaks generally to both groups in verses 8 to 10, then specifically first in verse 11 to the women and then in verse 12 to the men. Well, now we understand who deacons are and who can serve as deacons, but what is required of deacons? Here now we come to the heart of the passage. Just like when Paul speaks of elders, he sets forward a list of criteria. Just like when we study the requirements for elders, we noticed that the first criteria was the headline for all that followed. So it is also in the criteria for deacons. Verse 8a, deacons likewise must be dignified. And the word dignified means that they're honorable, worthy of respect. They have character and reputation that's highly thought of. In many ways, that's exactly what Paul said of the elders when he said they must be above reproach. In fact, reading the qualities necessary for being a deacon, one soon understands that the qualifications for being a deacon is not lesser than that of an elder. And in this, we must learn a valuable lesson. God has a great many roles that he wants his children to play. We're very likely to say that one role is greater than another, but the only reason we say that is because we don't have God's eyes to see. I like to tell you my story. You know, after pastoring a great many years, I took a number of years off. I worked as a full-time prof at a Bible college. And I, I remember going to church in those days and watching someone else give the sermon. And at first, that was tough. And then I began to pray for a ministry in the church and God gave a perfect one. I worked in the nursery. Kathy, my wife, tried to herd all the little kids together, and I served as a kind of a prison warden for them. I rounded up all the little toddlers that were trying to escape, and I brought them back to the prison, I mean, the nursery. And when we were done, you know, I was exhausted. The parents showed up and took their little bundles of joy off my hands, and Kathy and I cleaned up, and we picked up our Bibles, and we entered into the worship service, and we sat under the teaching of the Word. And until this day, I count those among my richest years in ministry. Now, why do I share that? simply because God hands out the assignments and we find joy to recognize that God's assignments are never trivial. Hence the requirements of a deacon is highly respected. So first, they must be worthy of respect. Now, after Paul clarifies the quality he wants in all deacons, he then breaks that down into a list of four qualifications. The first is that the deacon must not be double-tongued. When a deacon speaks, you should be able to take them at their word. They must not say one thing and then say another. They must not be addicted to wine, just like the elders. They must not be greedy for money, just like the elders. Since deacons care for the material needs of others, they might abuse money and steal. Deacons are people who are free from those besetting sins. And now Paul surprises us. He says they must hold the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. He wants all deacons to know their Bible very well and show they're obedient. That's how they're tested. One watches their lives to see if they're obedient to the word. Now, I've been right in verse 11. Paul now says something specific to female deacons. Now, in case you missed it, he wants them also to be worthy of respect. But then he adds three things for women to remember. First, he wants them to be free from slander. You know, later in 1 Timothy, we're going to find that a number of women in Ephesus were guilty of gossip. Paul may be pointing out something he feels women are susceptible to, because women are holistic in their approach to life, which is good, and part of the image of God. Yet it also comes with a weakness born by the fall. Deacons often learn the inner life of others, and they must safeguard that knowledge rather than gossip about it. Hence, Paul ends his instruction to the women demanding that they be sober-minded, restrained, and that they remain faithful. Then Paul now speaks to the men. He demands they take leadership in their homes, being one-woman man, managing their children well. Paul speaks of the temptation of men, how easy it is for men to abandon their commitment to their wife and family. Paul demands that male deacons be known as men who are godly leaders in their home. But as we go through this list, you'll find something missing. That's there in the list of overseers or elders. Overseeing elders are to teach, and Paul makes no mention of it with deacons. They must know the faith, but they're not called upon to teach the faith to the entire church. And that's not to say that they can't teach. Stephen taught and evangelized. That cost him his life. But it's not required that deacons all teach. And as we've seen, the role of giving authoritative instruction to the whole people of God, well, that's a role for the elders or the overseers. Deacons are not called to fill that role. They're called, however, to know the faith. We've answered the question of who a deacon is, who can be a deacon, and what is required of a deacon. We still have one final question to answer. Why be a deacon? Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you're gonna notice that Paul mentions two reasons for becoming the very thing that this world does not honor, servanthood. Why would one be a servant? Here's the first reason. It is a position of honor. It's because it's the ideal of the Christian life. It is to showcase what the life of Christ is like. To stoop down to care for the needs that others would gladly abandon is the mark of a Christian. So this is an honorable thing. Second, it builds great deep and lasting faith. Paul says it gives great confidence in the faith. It's only in the act of serving that we see the promises of God are being fulfilled in the lives of others, as well as in our own lives as well. And with all of that comes a warning. Those of us who are not serving, well, those of us who don't serve really have no idea of what kind of a man Jesus was. This is a call that calls all believers in some fashion to be deacons. Jesus always knew that the life he had called us to is the life of the cross. If we seek to save our lives, if we seek only to live for ourselves and our own gratification, in that case we will certainly lose our lives. For no faith can grow in the soil of a human heart that does not serve others and learn the call of sacrifice. But if we lose our lives in sacrificial service to others, we will find them, that's Christ's promise to us. Indeed, it will be the kind of life that goes on forever
0: with great joy. Thanks, John. Chuck. John- Is it possible that we've adopted a corporate perspective when it comes to things we aspire to within the church? And is that perspective harmful to the church body?
1: Well, I mean, we all know that there are business items that need to be taken care of. And uh, so, you know, in some ways, you know, some business acumen, at least by some, is very important. But on the other hand, I mean, I think um, if that becomes for us the most important issue or even the leading issue, or the means by which we look for leaders, we're always on the wrong track. Uh, Deacons are servants and uh, sometimes the best leaders are the most humble leaders. Now I'm gonna say not sometimes, but always. The best leaders are humble. The best leaders are those who deeply love the flock. The best leaders are those people that are willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of others and not for what they always want. I mean, you know, the office of leadership is not to get what we want, but rather to, you know, ensure that, you know, Christ is honored and glorified and that people are loved and that the gospel is going
0: forward. Important things. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. we celebrate Thanksgiving this month, we wanted to make sure to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your encouragement, prayers, gifts, all mean so much. We're also grateful for your notes, letting us know that Back to the Bible Canada is impacting your daily walk with Christ. Sarah wrote, Dr. John's stories illustrate so clearly how to live out the truths of scripture. Jordan wrote, your message was so timely for my heart. And special thanks to you for making this Bible teaching ministry possible. And don't forget to request your 2022 Scripture calendar based on Dr. John's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. It's our free Bible resource this month. Or if you'd like to make a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.